Welcome back to The Brandon White Show, where we have conversations worth listening to give you an edge to win in your business and your life. I'm your host, Brandon White. Here we go. Welcome back to The Edge Podcast, giving you the edge to win in business and in life. Here's your host, Brandon White. Hey, crew. Hey, what's up, Brandon? How you doing today? Never better. I'm like a shoeless summer down here in Half Moon Bay. Shoeless summer. I like it. Especially good for the 4th of July weekend. That's right. You can you can appreciate appreciate that. Yeah, I've been super excited to talk to you because Wine Spies goes back a long time. But I got to be honest with you, even more so, I'm excited to talk to someone who I believe grew up on the docks of the houseboats in Sausalito that I used to <laughs> drive by all the time. And I have never... Actually, I've talked to people who have stayed there, but not grew up. And I think your dad even designed the dock that your houseboat was on. Wow, you are good. That is that is correct. And I'll throw a cherry on top. The dock of the bay in the Otis Redding song, sitting on the dock of the bay, that is the actual dock that he was sitting on when he penned that. <laughs> is that right? Were you there then? Oh, no, I was not around. <laughs> Were your parents? My parents been part of that community for... Uh, well, they would they lived there for 20 years. They they bought the house as an anchor out for four thousand dollars and sold it when it actually had a slip on a pier for nice like two hundred fifty thousand. Twenty five years later, <laughs> that must have been wild. How was that? I mean, how much fun was that? There's a were the float planes docking there at the time too. They're not not on the South Forty, but I mean, it was wild growing up there as a little kid. I mean, you definitely your house moves so. Coming to solid land was actually a, a real trip for me because all of a sudden my house is just so quiet and still. Instead of instead of uh, seagulls and seals, it's owls and that kind of thing. It took us. It took some serious adjustment when I was a kid coming on land. Yeah, I bet. But it was a moment in time to be sure. I mean, Sausalito, you're you're not that. I mean, you're not that old. But so even Sausalito twenty years or thirty years ago was quite different than what it is today. I mean. I used to live across the bay there in Tiburon and I rode my, the reason I know it so well is because I'd ride around the uh, north side and come down and come through Sausalito and I, on the bike path, go by there every single day. And I was always like, man, that looks like a pretty cool community. And living in a dock like that in a place like Sausalito is just pretty wild. I mean, yeah, they definitely helped make it what it actually was. I mean, it was a crazy hippie community. And then they they actually started as an anchor out. So meaning there was no dock that their houseboat was attached to. We took a rowboat to their front door every day. You can imagine with a kid in groceries what, what that's like just to get to your front door. And they, they had a they, they had a band called the Red Legs. And the reason it was called the Red Legs was because it was so moist and damp out there that the seams from their jeans would rot out. So they painted the seam of the jeans, and they found that that would preserve the thread longer. So <laughs> that was the kind of lifestyle at one point in time. Sausalito is not like that anymore. <laughs> no. I, I mean, I think that's still a, a cool community, but Sausalito is just packed with people. I do – I I ride my bike there with friends occasionally still through there, but the one thing I do go back there is for Sushi Ron, the sushi place, which is right oh, off yeah. Main Street, which is – other than Main Street Sushi here in Half Moon Bay, believe it or not, is probably my favorite top two 
sushi places in the Bay Area. Sushi Rana is legendary. Still is. Yeah, it's cool. It's got the the tuna, the uh, what is it? I forget right now, but yeah, it's a great place to go. As long as you go there on an on a weekday and you get parking and uh it's it's funny you brought it up because I actually just went uh two weekends ago. Did you? I went back out of the dock to visit the house. Yep. And uh our old next door neighbor now his son is my age and he was sitting outside. So we caught up and it was uh it was really special. I mean I I haven't been there in a long time, so it was really funny. I mean the house is so small, it's hilarious looking back my memories of it. Well, it yeah. sort of makes you make you appreciate my wife and I being an entrepreneur for two decades plus. We lived in a 1400 square foot house on the East Coast for many years and we still own that house. And when I go back to it, I'm like, wow, this was small. But then I think it was so easy. Like we didn't have a lot of stuff and it was, it's amazing what you can deal with when that's all you have. And then you get into something bigger. It just seems like you accumulate a lot of stuff. Well, yeah, no matter how big your house is, it is like a gas expanding in a vacuum. You will, you will have enough stuff to fill your house. It doesn't matter if you're living in the Taj Mahal. Yeah, that's, that's for, for sure. So we're talking about wine today and you're the, you're the CEO now of Wine Spies, right? Yeah, correct. Agent crew reporting for duty, hence the shades. You got to stay undercover. I, I really appreciate that. It was very interesting communicating with you on email. I, I, I just went with the flow. I said, I got to go with agent crew. There's no, you, you can't fight that. When someone signs their email like that, you got to go with it. <laughs> you got to go with it. I actually, when I joined the company five years ago, you know, the founder, Agent Red, he's like, all right, what's your code name? I'm going to be him. Oh, well, I'm going to be Agent Rex. I've always wanted to be Agent Rex. He's like, no, no, no. That's not a code name. You can't have your real name as your code name. You have to live the brand, my friend. And, uh, <laughs> and now all these years later, I mean, it's funny because I actually like having a business persona, like Agent Crew. I mean, it's kind of nice having to have that little bit of a separation between your real self and, and your business persona. And now, I mean, most people, it's bizarre. Now, after 12 years in the wine industry, spending the first half of that representing myself and my family's winery, now I think more people know me as Asian crew than know me by my real name, which is which is Addison Rex, by the way. Spoiler. Addison This is this is the real <laughs> Addison Rex. And the founder was named Jason something. Jason Sieber. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Still, still, still uh, heavily involved. Jason Sieber is the founder, chairman emeritus. I see him every day. And we are business partners on several other projects now. So, you know, it's kind of freed him up to really pursue some other really exciting projects, including a successful mask company, which he stood up in about three months with an math and M-A-T-H. No mask company for oh. face masks. Oh, and really? Yeah. Yeah. It was a whole amazing journey just to get a totally original design bootstrapped off the ground in a matter of months. So, and we, now we just purchased uh, a company called Goldmine, which is an adaptogen mushroom supplement product. We acquired this in, uh, in December of last year. Wow. And now we're, we're working on that as well. But wine spies is, you know, the bread and butter gets bigger every day. So you and I exchanged some emails before and I said, I'm not a wine person. So this is going to be a really interesting conversation. And this is going to make me sound 
I don't know, really novice and elementary, but my wine exposure, other than drinking Conundrum, which I told you, yeah. is watching the movie, whatever that movie is, famous movie, it go on that thing with Napa that, that's Lowell from... Bus, sideways. Sideways. And the other movie, which was the story of the California winery that won that French contest. Bottle Shock. Bottle Shock, which is yeah. sort of an in- indie film, right? Yeah, actually, I mean, it was shot in Sonoma Valley at Cundy. You can actually see my family's winery in the background of many shots in that film. Oh, wow. Um, so and your, is your family winery uh, start with a B, Brightwell? No, no, it's a different one. It's called Deerfield Ranch Winery. Deerfield Ranch, okay. In, in Sonoma Valley, yeah, which is worth checking out. It's it's awesome. That's where I uh, cut my teeth. I learned a lot there. I was starting as a little lowly cellar rat. <laughs> As one does, scrubbing barrels and worked my way up, which was hard. Family is, you know, challenging. You almost have to kind of work harder to, to prove, to prove yourself. I'm um, especially in, in the wine industry. I think there's a lot of concerns with nepotism. And I think that there's actually a really strong culture of the next generation really having to kind of step up. So yeah, I was the general manager by the time that I left. And yeah, that was my education. Absolutely. So. But you actually have a formal degree. I think Cal Poly you went to. Don't don't they have yeah. a formal degree in wine? I guess what is it? Wine creation and design. Yeah, wine viticulture. I'm not a Cal Poly graduate. They have a, um, a wine and viticulture program that probably is, I would say, the best in terms of practical winemaking right now. They they have a they have a it's called wine and viticulture as the major, and then they have enology, viticulture, and wine marketing as separate concentrations within the major. And then Davis kind of focuses on the science and, and theory. Cal Poly actually has pretty extensive vineyards, and they make their own their own wine. And and then Sonoma State in recent years has, has made huge inroads. They've really tried to approach it much more from the business standpoint so they have they've had in the past like a wine executive program but now the the business school has has really taken it on and has a has a full full wine program that kind of specializes more in the business side rather than than winemaking and viticulture so did i get that wrong you didn't graduate from one of those schools no no, no. i i cut my teeth in the the school of hard knocks oh. an actual winery it, uh, okay it, and you yeah. know it was um it was quite the <laughs> It was quite the education. I mean, I really, uh, I had a, it was, it, there were the, the years at Deerfield were greatly informative and very challenging. So. Oh, I read a bio on you a few days ago and I thought I saw that, but maybe they were just talking about the, the, the degree. Did you build a robot by chance as a kid? Build a robot. Man, you really do your research. I'm impressed. <laughs> so you did build a re, you went to a school, your parents, moved and you went to a high school, I think, where they had a robot competition and you had to build a robot that that did very complicated things. Yeah, it was fantastic. They called the Academy of Engineering at, at just Sir Francis Drake, now known as Archie Williams High School there in San Sama. Uh, they have a very excellent advanced learning program, including engineering. So they, they split the program into two 
years where the first year you have to design a human powered vehicle and you have to build it in CAD and then race it at the end. And then the other year is a robot. So depending on when you come in, you have to do one or the other. Again, including developing CAD, coding it yourself. Uh, awesome program. I wish though I got to do the human powered vehicle, but I went to an amazing academy in, in Greece in the, on the island of Crete instead that year. So I spent six months of my, my high school senior year on Crete learning basically just about the Greek culture. This uh, Oxford English professor had fallen in love with Greece and decided he wanted to start his own little private institution, have maybe like 10 to 20 students per, per semester. That was phenomenal. So I, I missed the, I missed the human powered vehicle, but I got to, I got to be a shepherd in Greece, so worth it. <laughs> yeah, t- tough life. It, it's always in- I, I love Greek culture. I went my high school in Baltimore, Maryland. Boys Latin has a fundam a foundation in Latin and Greek culture, and I love Greek culture. So I'm envious of you being able to do that. But it always strikes me that wine people have very interesting backgrounds. <laughs> it's almost like a philosophy degree allows you. It's a combination of arts and science. That mm. allow you to be a, if the right word is connoisseur of wine, would you describe it that way? Well, I mean, I strongly agree with kind of what you're getting at there, which is people find their way to it in a lot of different ways and sometimes really interesting paths. The The nature of it is exactly that. It's this combination of art and science. So, you know, and, and, and also it's a very multifaceted field. So if you think about it from growing grapes to putting wine in the bottle and then selling it, you know, you've really got botany, biology, soil science, a tremendous knowledge of kind of like you know, climatology, essentially, um, and all of the different aspects that go into a particular region and understanding the, the terroir of that place. That's just on the viticulture side. On the analogy side, you've got chemistry, like really serious organic chemistry, fermentation science. You've got uh, manufacturing, like like serious manufacturing knowledge about manufacturing a food product. And, you know, you've got the art of cooking and this is where it really gets, you start to bring in this, this other element to it. And then on the sales side, you know, it's a highly competitive industry. You have a product that is perishable, heavy, highly regulated, hard, hard to distinguish in the marketplace. So how do you create that kind of, you know, a brand presence around it? And then all the logistics of, of selling a product like that. So it's really unique in a lot of ways and it's multidisciplinary. So you tend to find these interesting people that kind of thrive, you know, Renaissance man type, type thing. And you run into those characters more often than not. It's definitely one of the fun parts. I read and you just mentioned that the wine industry is heavily regulated. Why is it so heavily regulated? What is it about that growing grapes and turning it into is it alcohol in general or is it wine different than whiskey or vodka or something else? No, it is just, it is alcohol in general. And there's a long history, you know, of the country through the temperance movement and prohibition and the laws that are created on the other side of prohibition that, that make it, that, that make alcohol as an industry pretty challenging. It is very, very unusual in that it is one of the only only industries that have carve outs from the, the commerce clause so that states can actually can create their own independent legal frameworks that have to interact with each other. 
And that's because of the, the 21st Amendment. So it's one of the only things that at a constitutional level has to, like states can have preferential treatment and treat it differently. And then coming out of, of prohibition, there was a concern that they were trying to address called tied house, tied houses, tied house laws pre, pre prohibition. The saloons that had popped up at all of this, at all the little, you know, Western cities were essentially now had these exclusive relationships with these alcohol producers. And so they, 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 they were the producer, but then they also basically owned sometimes the, the saloon or the, the liquor establishment and it created these really powerful monopolies. So to try to address that, they came up with a three, a three tier system, they call it, where there's producer, distributor, and then retailer. And then you're not technically allowed to cross any of those tiers and they have to be separate and you can't own you can't own companies at different tiers. And so between the three-tier system and 50 states having their own alcohol laws that are not bound by the Commerce Clause, it's created a patchwork that compared to almost anything else is, I mean, it's just nightmarish, frankly. <laughs> so it makes it challenging for sure. So am I understanding this correctly, that you can't own the winery and own a distribution company to distribute Correct. that wine? Yes. Or, or like, or worse, you can't own like more, well, not worse, but more commonly, like a, if you own a winery, you can't own a restaurant. You're prohibited from owning a restaurant. What? Yeah. Where you would, well, with where you have a wine license. So yeah, you cannot, you yourself as a licensee, you cannot, some people have to have, you know, a separate company and then like you can't have more than X percentage ownership on that other company and, you know, it this frankly just creates a lot of ridiculous inconveniences. Why and is I, that? What what was the basis of that? Like what I don't even understand that. The initial see, this is the thing, is all of this mushroomed out of an initial concern that literally dates back to pre nineteen ten, like pre prohibition. And it really was like, you know, whatever a person was making the whiskey would go to a saloon operator and say, hey, I'll give you this whiskey for this price, but you can only sell my whiskey. And then over time, they just actually straight up owned the saloon itself. And so then it really was an anti-competitive environment. But the problem that they tried to address post-prohibition was for this niche issue, which has nothing to do whatsoever with where we're at today. And what's happened is over the past 80 years, the distributor class, the middlemen, they were the ones that were the beneficiaries of this of this three-tier system. And so they've grown massive. I mean, Southern Glaciers and you know Republic are like they're they're just behemoths of the entire wine, beer, and spirits industry. And so they're without a doubt the strongest lobby. So there are organizations like National Association of Wine Retailers, uh, it's Tom Wark, and then um kind of more grassroots things like Free the Grapes, which is an awesome website. And these are people that are basically consumer advocates, uh, retail advocates, or even winery advocates trying to basically say, like, let's get rid of all this three-tier system. It makes no sense. It's not It's not helping any actual wine consumers out because it makes it so much harder for, for small producers to, to reach people. So that's part of where Wine Spies comes in is, you know, we're able to find wines that would not otherwise reach people and and bring it to them because there's a reason that the wines that are on the grocery store shelf are the ones that are there. 
episode is sponsored by the Halle Financial Team at Expert Lending. Buying a house in today's market is competitive, and you need a lender that can close fast and get you the very best rate. The team is licensed in 48 states and has over 20 years experience in the real estate and lending space and access to lending rates that most mortgage brokers can't get. I know because I'm an investor in the team. If you need a mortgage or know someone that does, call or text Kara at 571-271-9086 and talk to a real human who will give you the customer service you deserve. Again, call or text Kara at 571-271-9086. Now back to the show. Because I'm going to fill in the blank there. I felt like you gave me a slow pitch. Because they paid, because they pay to be there. Yes, I mean the distribute the if you can imagine, you know, a distributor who has maybe like four thousand different brands in their portfolio, and then maybe many more SKUs than that. How do you go to a supermarket and pitch them on a particular wine that day? How do you even, as the salesperson, know what's all in your own book? It's not really possible. So if, if, if a particular distributor like Southern uh, dominates the grocery store shelf, which they do, as like 80% of it, okay, well, the wines that you're going to see are going to be the ones that are extremely well known, have the ability to, yeah, pay for play, usually in the form of, of incentives for sales reps. And, you know, and then in a kind of non nefarious way, it really just becomes a problem of like, how do you represent yourself? to the grocery store as the small producer if you have to go to this intermediary who's not really able to represent you well. And 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 that, you know, that's the biggest challenge. It's, you know, I, having worked on the, the producer side and represented my family's brand for a long time, even if you go with a smaller distributor, it's they don't have the staff and the manpower to open enough accounts to make the, it pencil out. And if you go with the big distributor who has the the clout, they have the reach, they have the staff, then you're almost like having to sell within the organization to the salespeople and, and constantly give them a reason to, to walk into that restaurant, walk into that grocery store and say, Hey, you should pick up a bottle of Deerfield instead of the other guy. You know, that's a never ending process too. It's just very hard. And so for that reason, direct to consumer is just so much better because, you know, it's 21st century, man. You can market directly to people and the challenge is that there's 50 states and they all have different laws and regulations about what you can and cannot do. Sometimes it's crazy. It's like, oh, you can't have more than, you cannot ship more than two gallons of wine to this one household per year. It's like, how, how do you even, how do you track that? So the, the compliance situation gets insane. It sounds like the anti-competitive spirit of the early 1900s law actually propagated an experience that is anti-competitive because if you are a small wine person and you have to go to a big distributor, they control it and they're going to say, well, we're not going to push enough. We're not going to invest in it. It's it's almost, it sounds like, crew, the what happened in the book industry with the big publishers and then Amazon going direct and it took, it it really did take 20 years. I mean, people forget I was on the internet back then. I mean, we were one of the original Amazon affiliates in the early 1990s and, or it was the middle 1990s, but the, the publishers controlled everything. And, and even today, they actually still control a lot 
of are you going to get your book on a shelf if that matters anymore. But wow, that is crazy. I never realized that about the wine industry. Yeah, it's funny because I gave a, I gave a talk pretty recently about the three-tier system. And everyone's really interested in it. And it actually directly affects people because that this really is the reason that, you know, you have the options that you do. And, and it's, it's just funny because no one ever talks about that side of it. Cause it's the boring regulatory side seemingly, but it actually is interesting. And everyone ends up obviously talking about the grapes and, you know, diff, you know, the, and, and different, different growing areas, which is totally understandable. And I'm happy to talk about it, but there is this entire other side of the story, which, you know, I, I definitely think that there's a lot of interest out there, but just doesn't see a lot of engagement, which is too bad too, because there's, you know, serious lobbying efforts like, like free the grapes, which I think is free the grapes.org. So if anyone ever, they have petitions all the time to kind of redo this at the national level, but. Again, it's very. There's some recent, some some recent Supreme Court decisions which which uh, have started to kind of put some, you know, chinks in the dam, and maybe we'll see see some leaks that are going to turn into a trickle that's going to turn into a flood of wine, but not not yet. It's also like the car industry. That would be like telling Elon Musk that he can't sell cars directly to consumers. He must have dealerships, and I mean. You can't work in one industry and not in another. So well, what's, even, what's even worse is imagine if literally every state had the right to come up with its own laws about the manner of how those cars get sold. Then that is the situation we're in. It's, it's wild. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's absolutely insane. So are you considered a distributor? No. So we're considered a retailer. And that's probably the most challenging position to be in of any of the groups. So... Producers themselves have had, you said Amazon took 20 years. It has gotten significantly better over the past 20 years. And for a wine producer, the rights have expanded dramatically. And so there's about 37 states that producers can basically ship into without much issue. Um, and there's some that are harder than others. And there's, a, you know, it's an entire cottage industry around just, uh, compliance. So. But, you know, where we can ship that, we make everybody's lives a lot better. So what we do at Wine Spies is we, we basically sell one different wine every 24 hours. And so it's a clock strikes midnight, a brand new wine goes on the site, and it's always a super crazy deal. And that's kind of what we do. And then we have this, this locker feature that basically lets you add, add a bottle or two of wine to your, to your locker over time and then ship it to you for free when you get 12 bottles. And that's nice. A lot of the other flash sale sites, you know, those like do free shipping on six bottles. So you got to take a risk on this one. You might not have tried just based on a recommendation and get six bottles. You know, if you can do the day, it's a $50 bottle. It's a $300 call. So, you know, this way you can just try one bottle, see if you like it. And it really works for people. People, we rolled that out at the beginning of the pandemic and people absolutely loved it. So this hasn't been the model for. The wine spy since in the early days, it was one bottle of wine a day that you bought and was shipped to you. And that was your bottle. You would try it. Is it, was it the same model? No. So until November, I mean, I'm sorry, April 2020, it was buy six, get free shipping. So, and that was kind of the standard. And it took a lot of innovation and technology to actually make this whole thing feasible behind the scenes. So for the user, it's really, really easy. 
you check out, you just click add to locker, and then you'll see how much are in your little virtual locker. And then when it's full, it ships. But behind the scenes, just to, to make that all work, it's actually quite, quite sophisticated. So that, that was the a big paradigm shift for us. And we, we spent over a year actually doing software development on it. And it just so happened that we were able to roll it out in April 2020, which lined up with everybody being at home. <laughs> so that was very fortuitous in terms of, in terms of our launch of that, of that feature. And we found a, a lot of, of acceptance. And, and we've actually been around since 2007, which makes us the oldest wine flash sale site that's still, that's still around. Wine Loop was the only earlier one. And they, uh, they folded up shop when Amazon, Amazon closed their wine division down. Their parent company had been purchased. So yeah, wine spies, we're the veteran of the industry. <laughs> well, I mean, I, as an early guy on the internet, I started in 1996. I've seen a lot of wine tries, let's call yeah, it. A uh, lot. And a lot of venture money yeah. into it, which I understand. A lot of VCs are interested in wine and even some of them have wineries. So the belief that there's a model there. But I want to say back to you just so that I understand the business model. In the early days, it was still a flash sale site, but you had to buy six bottles of that wine based on the recommendation. Well, you could buy as many as you want, but you needed six bottles to get free shipping. So a minimum, a minimum yeah. of of six. Yeah. So for free shipping, which is sort of the the cliff, why people because you're going to pay a lot for shipping. So in the current model, it's I could rack up six bottles in my virtual locker, which could happen over two weeks, three weeks, three months, and then I can trigger free shipping. But I could have that bottle shipped to me and pay shipping. Is that right? Yeah, correct. And at, and at checkout, you can just say single order or add to locker. And if you hit that minimum, then you know you can just ship it right away for free. But the the lockers thing works great for people because it's inconvenient for people to get all these different wine shipments anyway. You have to be home to sign for them. So this alleviates that pain point too. Even if you were happy to buy six bottles of every single offer. Now you've got four different packages coming to you. Now, you know, you can just get, just get one box that you have to sign for. I mean, frankly, people love it. I mean, there is just no pushback initially because everyone, we, we, what the trade off was at the beginning, we went from six bottle free shipping to a full case, which is 12 bottles. But the, the convenience of aggregating all the orders together and the benefit of being able to buy just one or two bottles and ultimately get free shipping, it just so far outweighs that. I mean, since we've been around since 2007, we've got long-term customers. We have lots of people that have been with us for over a decade. And yeah, people just after it took them a second to adjust to, to the, whole, the, the, the system and we completely redesigned the website too. It's just been a massive success and, and uh, we couldn't be more excited. Can we talk about the business part? Because there'll be listeners who dropped into this episode to talk about wine which we have talked a little bit about, but also the business itself. So it appears to me, I read an article on Jason and I forget what the date was, but it was talking about that a lot of the business relies on an email list, which is goes to show you can really make money off of a very targeted email list. It was also talking about that you were, I don't know if you are now 
advertising and the ROI and investment on the paid ads were initially in the, I don't know, it was a few X return, 150%, but long-term because you have repeat customers, it was actually off the chart. I don't even, it was so high that they didn't even report that number. And that at the time you were doing as much as $400,000 a month in sales of wine. So that's what all I know is what was reported in some article that I read about it. Could you talk a little bit about the business and how it works? Does it rely really on an email list? Are you using organic SEO? Or are you still using paid ads? How does it work? Yeah, no. So we're actually happy to say we're over eight figures now, um, which feels great. And is that annually? That's annually. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, we're, we're, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's such a different position that we find ourselves in, in now than before. So I'll just say straight up, the entire business works off of that email list still. So direct email marketing and we send out an email every single day. And because of that, uh, there's so many different ways I could take this. So first I'll say that. Uh, yeah, because I'm about to jump in and be like, let's talk about email marketing yeah. and open rates and all this yeah. sort of, because without that, your business doesn't work. If you get a bad mark or you don't have your DMARC record set right or something happens, you, you can be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, no. And we studiously guard that. We have an incredible, we have an incredible center score. And I mean, this the foundational to the business. Absolutely. So we, and we send an extremely high volume of, of emails. More on that in a second. If you're thinking about signing for your list and I don't want to get 20 emails, we've got plenty of conversation there too. But no, it's, it's completely email driven. So the way that we build the business over time is to build the size of that audience. And that's how we've operated since day one. That's how we continue to operate. The interesting part about the number one source of, of new email subscribers is still Facebook right now in the early days. Paid, paid ads. Paid ads on Facebook. The, the cost has gone up and it is incredibly high. The fact is, is that we actually provide a unique service and value to people that keeps wine lovers coming back over and over again. Our purchase frequency right now is on average on a one month period. It's about four times a month on a three month period. It's about six times every three months and annually it's about 12, 12 orders a year. So the LTV for a customer on a yearly basis can simply afford that even on a low margin business. So it would not work if we were, it only works if you are like selling like a couch or something with an extremely high price point and you're going to sell it one time, or if you're going to sell something over time and you only have to pay for that initial customer acquisition, you know, but our platform is, is inherently sticky in that, you know, the locker system, people want to continue to fill it up, but I mean it, like we have the best price on a particular wine every single day in the world. And the wines that we offer is not an at all discount bin plonk. Like it's the opposite. It is sought after known wines, really high quality wines that you might not have known about. And we, we work extremely hard to source it. We're right here in the middle of wine country. And we've just got, you know, like probably a hundred years of industry experience between all of us and a real Rolodex. So the wines themselves are great. And then people in particular, like our customer base is people that really, really know and like wine. And so it works. It's it, their wine hookup. And, that, and that's great. So they keep coming back for more. 
And, and that's, that is why it works to be able to pay those north of $250 CPAs. I mean, you know, are you kidding? No, not at all. It's, it's, it sucks to pay those, but that's just, that's where it is. I mean, and we try all kinds of different prospecting strategies, including, you know, direct mail. Our referral system's excellent and we've got all those things going, but, you know, display ads don't work. Our organic SEO is excellent. But the problem is, is that we're a deal of day flash sale site. So, you know, if you came in looking for Alexander Valley, Cabernet, XYZ Vintage, if we ever sold it, we'll probably hit number one or number two for that organically. But if you click through, you're just going to see the sale page with all the information, but it's going to say sold out. And the price is going to be hidden, by the way. That's actually really important to our model. The price gets redacted even in the metadata. So after, after the sale is done. Yes. And that's really important for our winery partners because they don't want their overall long-term price point to get damaged, which is something that we're extremely sensitive to and completely understand. And our customers get that our sales take place for 24 hours. And after that, it's gone. So that way, you know, helping maintain the integrity of the brand's positioning and still giving them like a 24 hour one time, like here's a fact check. So, you know, that kind of works for everybody. So you pay these and I, in that article, it did say that you had tried hundreds of different display of different ads in paid ads, which you basically really have to do a combination between copy and images. Do you still constantly change that or if you found some winners that? Are regularly produce. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally think that the, the it's funny because when you go to a marketing conference, the tips that really are going to be the most effective tips are the ones that you probably have heard a thousand times and know, but just don't actually do. So the basics of A/B testing and you know, very and constantly creating new ad campaigns, doing a bunch of different variations, and actually doing that that work, that boring that work. Matters a lot and our CMO does a really, really good job of, you know, that aspect of the grind to try to keep content fresh. But that's almost just like the basics of what you need to do at the minimum. Really what one thing that we've constantly tried to keep innovating and trying new things is creating really compelling actual different types of ads and then funnels on top of those. For example, like. Does a 10, 10% off work? Does a $10 work? Or, hey, how about this? How about a $1 bottle? And it really actually is $1 of a really good wine. And, and, and then you can, you can start your walk over that. You can ship it. You can ship it to yourself. You pay the shipping. But if, you know, by the time you pay the $12 shipping, it's still going to be cheaper than whatever that bottle's worth. And we took the hit and then maybe you bounce. But maybe you open the locker. Maybe you really like that wine. You're like, hey, even paying for shipping, this was a killer bottle. I'm coming back for more. And so just kind of like constantly. And then after someone lands on that page, is it like a custom? Do they register for the email list first? Do they hit that sale page initially? And then just constantly iterating off of that to see what really works. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, for the, the, the number one thing though for us is the content that we actually produce on a daily basis. The real service that we provide is the write-ups that we do. And, and anyone, the, the reason that people don't mind getting an email from us every single day is one, the wines are actually good and they're interested in seeing what we have that day and what the deal is. But two, the emails are written in a really fun, engaging way. Like we constantly get like emails. 
who's the writer? Who writes this? Like, what? this is hilarious. They're genuinely funny and fun and informative. So people look forward to them regardless, you know, especially obviously if they're interested in wine. So you got, and we do an enormous amount of research and, and we do it every single day. So that, that really is the reason we can justify sending an email a day. I think it's hard to do that if you don't got the goods. And it helps that it's always fresh. It's always a new. Do you do it on weekends? Yeah. So this is the part that is, this is what Jason's initial brilliance was with Wine Spies is everyone else has tried to just take some off the shelf software to do what we do. And it's an enormous amount of work to constantly merchandise products this way. One of Jason's initial insights was, was that there's nothing out there that, that works. We need to build something ourselves. And so he found a really talented developer super early on and they built an actual platform themselves, which has been modernized and updated over the years and is now a true, like standalone proprietary piece of, of software, which can merchandise a flash sale deal. In particular, it does wine well because it also handles all the compliance and all those aspects of it. But I mean, it is a turnkey from soup to nuts, like logistics platform, marketing content creative uh, platform for merchandising around a particular sale on a given date. And then, you know, full featured CRM. So it's got all the goodies and all the inventory management and such. So what's crazy is, is that we can actually merchandise the sales and love calendar views. It's in a calendar view. We have an entire calendar programmed out for a month. My wine buyer is right now on vacation in Turkey for three weeks. All the content was done. If we wanted, we could all turn off the lights and close the door and walk away and the site will run itself. So over the weekends and all is automated, nothing to do. Everything just kind of works like clockwork. And it really took, it took a lot of investment in, in the in the software to do that you cannot cannot do this with shopify and you know hacking it together it's not it will not work and that's given us a that, so from a business perspective there's a really interesting story to be told here because there's a dramatic trade-off between the competitive advantage there's a reason that we have lockers and other people don't have lockers it's because we have our own solution software solution the trade-off is is that any little thing that we have to innovate and build ourselves. So now we are in competition with Shopify powered stores and there's been an, you know, an insane amount of, of integration. So if there's a software like a marketing platform like Clavio or MailChimp with all these new sexy features, and if you were on Shopify, you click a button and boom, the, the integration is there. It's done for us. Okay. What's the API? Let's look at a six month build out for whatever this is. We have to be far more deliberate about the choices that we make and the expenses is, is much higher of actually building out additional feature sets, but we have a full-time development team. So we're constantly improving. And then the big thing is right now we've been working on the app for the past year and are going to roll that out probably next quarter. And there's a whole bunch of new features that are just can't be more excited about. So, yeah, it's a it is interesting approach. I would do it all. I would do it all over again this way for sure. Absolutely. Well, having been in the business a long time and and running sites, e-commerce sites, media sites, course sites, I can keep going. I've tried. I don't want to say I've tried everything, but I've done a lot over two decades in the internet and. Everything, even today for us, we started back, we built our own e-commerce engine 
early on, mainly because in 1998 and 99, you had to. <laughs> in, in fact, we built a bulletin board. We built a shopping engine. We built a lot of those things in-house. And then I think I just migrated to trying to get off the shelf things. And I duct taped a media company that I eventually sold together. But it is it is duct tape and it is super hard. And in all fairness, as a software developer or a guy who's in tech, you can't build for everybody. Like it's super hard to be, well, we're going to build a flash wine site. I mean, it's just hard, but it really is your competitive advantage in this solution that you've built. Are you, are you also the emailer or I was, cause I was going to say, what email company do you use to mail your list? Yeah. So, so we do use MailChimp. And, and like I said, that was one of the hardest things is picking which partner you're going to ultimately stick with because that, that integration is by far the most brittle part. So the email, the template is the template lives in MailChimp and almost every single data point for that email is passed through. So the, so we, we click a button and say create campaign and it live passes through all of the fields in our merchandising platform to MailChimp. And then we even have the API set up on our side to the extent where it's like we can do the segmentation on our side and we can even set up A-B tests on our side and our software. So for the most part, you don't really even need to log into MailChimp to go through the entire process. For Practically speaking, we do, but that is the degree. And, and actually, interestingly, we're kind of starting to question how much we want to replicate, you know, UI in our backend versus truly lean on whatever your integration partner is. It's hard. I mean, it so quickly ends up being where you've got 20 different backend dashboards and what's so cool about what we do and why we've been able to keep our actual business so lean and have so little overhead is because we've created so much automation from within this one system. So from soup to nuts, when I joined the company, Agent Red, Jason was holding down the company by himself with one other person, which at the time was a 17-year-old son. So that is the skeleton crew that can run the entire business. So it's that is completely due to the technology that's been created. There's, there would be, It would be impossible otherwise. I think it's a... Because I was going to ask you how many people... Like when you say you have a software group is are they wine spies software employees are they outsourced and how big is it just as as an idea of what it takes to do something like this i actually think it's going to be smaller i think it's actually a really fascinating business case as well because so initially there was a one full-time in-house developer for who who basically developed the platform by himself in a basement and he was a full-time wine spies employee he was with the company for, I think, about six years, and he left at least left us in good hands of another dev before he left. That dev is Agent Q, aptly named, and, and so Q operated his own software development. I can't help but laugh because that is funny. <laughs> he, and he really is our Agent Q. You know, he's amazing. <laughs> And we've got, he's actually out here visiting. He's, he's in uh, San Diego, but he's from here. So he was, I saw, I got to see him for once last week, which was great. But so, but this is actually interesting. So he decided we kind of, he had the option because he only had, I think, one other major client at the time. 
he did have the option to leave that other client behind and just come in full time. He opted to, to remain on as an independent contractor, and he was still a one-man shop. As we've grown and increased his retainer dramatically, he's got a full team now. His team is fully distributed, but he's got a UX designer, a full-time graphic designer, two junior software, like actual developers, and then one senior developer. So I think he's grown to about six people. And then for us, we have this really unique and interesting relationship where Agent Q is a partner in the company, but he's also a... He on, you know, in a distributed work environment, him on Slack, he feels and acts like a full time member of our team, but he operates this other entire team. And it works for me as a manager because now I have this one endpoint to communicate with. He's highly intelligent, excellent communicator. I don't have to deal with all the, 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 the bits and pieces on the back end. And I don't have to worry about his, his overhead and his situation. I have a, I have a, I have a retainer, which is manageable. Then now it just simply becomes about output and, you know, what projects I want to, to deal with. And I don't have to deal with running a complex development studio. And I get the benefit of he does have other clients. And as, and as we've been able to increase his team and capabilities, now he has been able to better market himself. And so as a result, Wine Spies gets to share the burden of, of payroll for the entire team with other companies that are his clients. And that would be completely different if I had all the mouths to feed myself. So that's, um, it's a really unique situation. It would not work if Q wasn't who he is. And he just is an excellent communicator. He's highly responsible and just frankly, extremely intelligent. And so it works in that way. If you could ever figure out such a situation, great. You know, I think it really is a viable, a viable solution. We own a hundred percent of the IP that he produces. So that's crucial. Yeah. And, and I think aligning the interests by offering him a partnership was, was very wise. And that, that was something that, you know, Jason really kind of figured out early on. And so our interests are really aligned that way. Everyone's the same as it who writes the copy? Because what uh, I just started getting emails, but the, it reminds me of the old, and this is going to, I don't know whether this makes me crazy or, or a connoisseur, but we're smart, but I buy these old Jay Peterman, old Banana Republic, old catalogs because back then in the early years before the internet, they were telling really incredible copy store, writing copy on on things, yeah. uh, clothes in that case, but, or sunglasses or purses or whatever it was. And they were truly entertaining. I mean, the copywriters, we actually had a guy who worked, it was an early Jay Peterman guy back in that day and talked about writing copy like that. I mean, people, I think we miss that in today's day and age. And it feels like that's what you've brought back. So who's writing this copy? I mean, 365 days worth of emails. Yeah, absolutely. So that is our chief marketing officer, Agent Roan. And he is, I mean, there's no other way to say it. I mean, like he, he's just a, he's just a crap copywriter. There's a definitely a voice and a style, you know, which we try to emulate, but which, which does help kind of narrow it. And, and interestingly, there's all, also a story to tell about a given wine. Sometimes you'll read, you'll, you'll like, you'll read the wine and it's about like Terminator or something like Judgment Day. 
instead of it being about the wine. But there had to be a nucleus of the store of the of of whatever is interesting about that wine that's the jumping off point for it. And so, you know, it's funny when there's a wine that is a we might taste a wine that we love at our at our weekly wine tasting. And this wine is so good, but how can we sell it? And and if there's no story there, we just can't do it. And so that, that it really does kind of help that there's every wine is unique in that way. But yeah, it's just keeping it, it's keeping it fun. It's not keeping it stuffy. In terms of a competitive thing, we have the advantage that the wine industry, people just love to write boring, dry, stuffy content that people turns people off. You talk about the catalog, it is very similar because people are picking up catalogs all the time, flipping through it, whatever can get the person to stop flipping and like read it. And if you get a laugh, like how much better is that than just being like, hmm, interesting, like more brown penny loafers. It's like onto the next page. This way, at least, all right, you're giving a chance to get to really engage people. And then particularly with the insane volume of emails everyone gets, you know what high compliment it is that people say, I, 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 you're the only email that I actually read every day. I mean, it's hard to stand out like that. So, and just keep it fun. Keep it real. Do not write very properly, write, write how people actually speak. I think it really comes through the screen so much better. Jason, Jason, you know, he really is kind of a stickler for grammar. And it was, it was hard to, to shift when, uh, Ron came aboard to start writing copyright and be like, no, 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 we don't want that com, the Oxford comma to be there. You know, this is intentional, but I think the results speak for themselves. And I actually, I like, I like it when, when things are well written as well. So <laughs> it's hard, but I mean, it's just people. People prefer it. And, and isn't that understandable? I mean, when someone walks into a room, who's the person you gravitate to? The person that makes a real human connection or the person who is so proper that they're unapproachable? I think it's pretty clear. I think you make a really good point. And I think there's a difference. I, my mom's actually done seven books, is a writer. I'm writing a book. I write on the internet and blogs and things like that. And I went to, a college that has the highest literary award of any college or university in the United States. I mean, I, I grew up writing and I started to really, DNA. yeah. I, and I, I really embraced, it. I have dyslexia. And when I figured out how to like undo my mind, whatever that means and start writing, I was like addicted to writing. And in my, through that formal process, I can write formally. I'm not saying that I always get commas and stuff right. And I certainly don't spell right, but thank God for word, word, whatever word doc, you know, word software. But when we shifted to the internet, it's much more conversational. And as I'm writing even this book on actually how to build a business plan oh, cool. in, thir- in, in 13 slides, I'm writing conversationally and I've been talking to editors and you know, they'll say, send me a piece, send me a piece. And I'll be like, you can't talk like this. And I'm saying, no, like you don't understand. I want to talk how I speak yeah, because that's what I want to come through. Yep. And I'm going to either live or die yep. by the sales yep. of this. Yep. But I understand that everybody want to put you in the box and they would tell you, Hey crew, you shouldn't, you shouldn't write that story about that wine. You should write about the taste aftertaste. I don't know what people, it's, you know, the, the aroma and I'm sure you need to highlight those things, 
but people are tired of that crap. hundred percent. I mean, and, and it's the personality and I'll say this and I'm sure, and you just expressed it. It takes a lot to resist that. Mm. It, it, like there's so many people saying, well, you got to have the right comma. You have to do this. You have to, you have to have it four sentences in a paragraph. No, I put one sentence in a paragraph when I write online because you can't read four sentences yep. in your email. Yep. It doesn't right? stand out. No, so how many words on average is an email that you guys and ladies write? That's actually a really good question. I just like off the top of my head, I want to say about 500, which seems like a lot because it is. We have a couple, we have two different templates and one of them has basically like a brief paragraph, which is about 300 characters. And then the other template is the full content of the write-up, which is definitely about 500 words. And sometimes it's significantly longer than that. I mean, it depends how much of the stories is there to actually tell. I mean, like we want to keep it fun and engaging, but frankly, we also don't want to bullshit too much. I mean, like, you know, like we want to have it be like, we want to have the content be worth reading. So, you know, it's like, if we're just totally adding fluff, then Again, there's probably not a story there in the first place. So sometimes the sometimes the content will be long if there's a lot of really interesting things to say about the winemaker, about the wine, how it was made. And I think one of the things that we do is we do both. You know, it's like we don't instead of talking about like, oh, it tastes like boysenberry and uh used Prada handbags, we do talk about like how the wine really like makes you feel, if it's fun, if it's fresh. But also talk a lot about the real kind of nitty gritty of, of the way the wine actually is made, what makes it interesting wine. So we have real content and that, and, and that actually is what readers of wine are interested in. But are, if it, if, if you're going to say it tastes like rhubarb, does that, do you buy something? Cause like, oh, someone said it tastes like rhubarb, you know, not so much, you know, and that's, it's just not what sells. And, you know, frankly, the, yeah, we're 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 at an advantage where everyone else seems to be stuck in that in that mode for sure. Interestingly, from a data standpoint, we have a different section down below, which we've had since the beginning of the site, which is which is look, look, smell, taste, mouthfeel, and pairing. And all my team just really wants to axe that whole section because we don't think it really matters. I like it because we're, ha- we're building this huge data set over 15 years of business and one line a day. So I, there's something like I'm, I'm almost at the point where we might cut that section, but I'm not quite ready yet because I do think that there's something intrinsically valuable about having the information. So, well, you could still rate it and just not include it. Yeah. And we have added, actually, we've added a really simple like five by five grid for for those things just on a scale of one to five and that's new definitely going to continue that for i think that's a much more approachable visual way for people to get a sense of those kinds of things but we're always looking for for better ways for people just to like at a glance understand what the wine is what the deal is and then if they want to learn more and i think i think that's a big thing is like not everybody needs all the the detail but some people do so how do you present it where people People can easily understand what the offer is, but then if they want to dig deeper, that, that, that rich experience is there for them and, and we're providing that too. So yeah, definitely, uh, definitely a balancing act for sure. And we get better at it every day. 
you know, and our, and our wine buyer, Agent Noir, is just an incredibly knowledgeable person. I mean, when I was talking about like the areas of the wine industry, got viticulture, you know, enology, wine business, I completely forgot about wine lore. And this is what like, you know, movies like Salma are all about. It's like this whole body of knowledge about the wines of the world, you know, who makes what, where, with the specific, how much, how much Nebbiolo can be in this wine if it's in this area, you know, it's, it's just, there's an infinite amount of that knowledge out there. And man's like a walking encyclopedia. And that's, it's just incredibly helpful. Now, how are your, are open rates very high because of the niche market that you're in? Yeah, uh, super high. I mean, like we're at anywhere. It depends on how segmented it is, obviously, because we'll get as high as 50% from, you know, our, we send a second email, which is a more targeted email to people that have preferences. So almost, and we're talking about a pretty sizable send for that second one. And yeah, as high as 50% for our daily, which is, it's a large audience, you know, we'll still clock in over 30%, 35%. This is several hundred thousand. You don't yes. have to reveal the list. So several, hundred several, hundred, several hundred thousand emails. So you basically can predict your business now. Yeah, yes. I mean, you go for it. You know, unless something bad happens with a, with a send that you're, you know how much revenue you're going to make. Yes and no. It's very, so like we have a pretty consistent, pretty consistent open rates and the click throughs are much smaller than that. Cause which also goes to show you that people are really actually like engaging with our content. They open the email to read it regardless of whether or not they're actually interested in that particular wine that day, or at least they're going to check it out because they like seeing what wine spies has got. Whether or not they're actually going to buy that wine depends on if they like like Raposo Italian wines. Like who knows? And that is the challenge is that when it comes to every given wine, there's the varietal, there's the producer, you know, what region that they're from. There's the scores on the wine. I mean, it makes a huge difference if it's a 97-point wine versus a 93-point wine. If the winemaker is particularly notable for whatever reason, if we have an insane deal, like all of these factors are massively influential on how the overall sale is going to perform. And you can't take any one of those factors away. So you've got probably, I would say, like literally like 10 independent variables, which really put, would really make a difference in terms of the overall performance of, of that day's sale. And so I, we're at the point right now where it's like we have some pretty good understanding of our overall business KPIs, but trying to create like some real, like, so use our, our huge amount of data to be more predictive about how a particular sale is going to perform. I'm at the point of like hiring a full-fledged data scientist to try to figure this out because we basically have been doing it for long enough where all of us have a bit of an intuition. And sometimes, you know, we all do our wine tasting on Fridays. It's super fun. And and we all have to like a wine, but everyone's kind of got their own personal preferences. So like, I'm not an Italian wine guy, even though I'm Italian. So, so if I, if I, don't, so if I don't like the Italian wine, it's like, it, well, I'm not the guy. So we've all got personal preferences about, you know, what we like and that kind of. So anyway, everyone's got their own different little niches. I'm the, I'm the Sonoma boy. I like my big juicy Zinfandels and, you know, I like my red blends and that kind of thing. So I actually like Conundrum 
and these are the, and I kind of I don't have like a perfectly dry palate. I, I don't like it to be sweet, but I like it to have a little bit more residual sugar than other people might might find appropriate. Point is, everyone's got their preferences, so it works as a panel. That being said, we're trying to figure out if it's going to work for our audience. It's like sometimes we're all agreed, oh, this is going to be a hit. Sometimes people are a little bit more divided. Like I think this will do well. Uh, someone else says, I don't know. I don't, I think it's too niche, too, too, too austere, you know? And so, so what's interesting, what I'm getting at is that is surprising how often our intuitions are correct because we've been doing it for a while. And so it's like, how can you create a data model, which does a better job than our human intuitions? I'm thinking it might be like, I'm, I'm serious. I think it might be as big a challenging a problem as like AlphaGo. You know, it's like we need to get some, we need to get deep minded here to actually figure this out. Cause I don't know if it's going to be better than human players at this, at this gambling game. So, and then it's funny. We all give each other, like informally, we give each other a couple of, uh, a couple of, of Trump card where it's like everyone else thinks this wine is not going to do very well. And someone, really believes in it and backs it. No, this is an incredible wine. People have got to try it. Even though it doesn't have a name, people are going to, we're going to be able to reach through the screen and tell people that they love it. And, uh, yeah, you'd be surprised. It's a little bit, okay. All right. This will, this one's on you, man. Like <laughs> this will better work. And yeah, sometimes it, sometimes it, it, it does. Sometimes it doesn't. And then we give them a, a little bit of a gentle ribbing, but <laughs> you know, well, as a marketing analysis guy, I, cause I worked in marketing analysis at America online back in the day. Like you could build, I, I've been, I don't have kids. So I've, I've had a very, I've been very blessed to have a very diverse career and I'm really grateful for it. And I think it's, yeah, it's helped, but the, you could build a model like that. We used to predict customer lifetime value when people would call in based on about a hundred variables and we would route you either to a U.S. call center or to an Indian call center based on what we scored you because it was more expensive. So mm-hmm. you absolutely can can run that. Switching gears a little bit, are you worried about email going away? You mean in terms of a viable option or in terms well, of Well, th- this is... Look, yeah. Yeah, let me set the stage a little bit more to give some context. Everybody, for the last 20 years... In fact, I think since I really got an email address in 1990, 1990 maybe, everybody said that email was going to go away. People told me Texas was going to go away. I don't even think we've transitioned into text marketing yet. It's not really a thing. People haven't figured it out completely because it's a very personal thing. So how do I get into your string without upsetting you and peeing you off and then you you dish the brand? But people say email's going away. Slack came, they said email's going away. And I said, email's not going away because all that happens is, is you get it a, a blank canvas and it becomes very easy to find things. But once it's populated, we're back to the problem that people complain about, which is I can't find the link you sent. I can't find the file you sent. I can't find that piece of information. It just, it's not a technology issue. It's an amount of data within a certain silo per se issue. So people are say, email marketing is going away. Email is going away. People aren't going to use email. Millennials don't use email. I think millennial, all the millennials I know use email. But so that's my, really that what I'm, 
where the crux of the question is because your business right now is very dependent on email. So I'm asking like, does that worry you? Are you concerned? Are you looking 10 years from now and say, we got to go to text or we got to go something else? Yeah. I mean, you know, putting on my far flung future goggles, I just, I mean, I don't see that happening for a wide variety of reasons, including there's too much actual infrastructure for the internet still revolves around email. I mean, how do you reset passwords right now? You know what I mean? It's, I mean, it's just, there's, it's, the fact is it is de facto unique identifier remains the email address for all of your various accounts and and two-factor authentication. You know, you still require this one identifier way to, way to contact you. And, And until that as a fundamental means of, of identification and communication gets replaced, it's like, it's like the U.S. being the reserve currency. It's like until someone else comes along and replaces like that very basic thing, it's like, all right, well, this is what we got. And that's everyone sees that. And I also agree with you about the basic utility of the email being extremely useful mechanism of, of communication. It's a blank slate. It's easily searchable. I have lived my entire life at inbox zero. So I don't have the problem of not being able to find things. And I, you know, and I also have a unified inbox with all my emails from 20 different email addresses coming to one place. And I think that there's really good email habits that make it a very useful platform. I was really excited about Google Wave when it came out and it didn't catch on. And it wasn't because waves weren't better than email. I think the fact that Wave utterly failed just goes to show you the long lasting nature of, of emails. But if, if ever someone thing comes along to dethrone email, I mean, it'll probably be pretty freaking awesome. So I look forward to that. You know, <laughs> do you remember? Well, it sounds it, Google way. Of course I do. I mean, I've been fascinated in building a communication platforms and the psychology around them for a long time. And it did fail. I mean, I, I thought that I, I've never, I worked at AOL with AIM. Yeah. I mean, that that was the original yeah. Slack, yeah. if you want to call it, or Skype or whatever. 100%. And I, it sounds like you, you sounds like you use Slack because I hear it in the background. Yeah, I'm right? sorry, I'm trying to mute it now. <laughs> no, it's okay. It, it, you have to you have to mute it in the upper right hand corner on Mac. But so you do use Slack internally. Funny enough, but the funny part is, is that when you start using Slack, it sends you emails to let you know you got a message. Well, so, I, so we use we use Slack for 100 percent of our communications internally. We use zero email within the team, and then. Current and then just adopted slight. And I cannot recommend it more highly enough. It is freaking awesome. It, it is, uh, essentially it's like, uh, it's just like, it's just Google Docs basically, but with a much better way to organize the content on the left side of the screen and essentially a table of content style. And then it has oh, the, the capability of embedding and linking between docs and, and just a, and what is currently a much more dynamic way than Google Docs has. And so basically you can use it in a wide variety of ways from like meeting notes to knowledge base to working documents on like a project basis. And then I use Asana for all the to-do, to-do list tracking, project tracking. So it's basically like I use the whole tech stack is Slack for communication, Google Suite for like calendar and drive as just a shared repository of all the files. But I've completely switched from, from Google Docs to Slight for actual docs. 
And then I've used it now for all of the, all of the note taking and, and again, shared project information. And then I, I use Asana as just a glorified to-do list, which is great for that. And, and honestly, I think I've never had a better tech stack for an organization. I look forward to kind of replicating this among, among different teams. It's really, really effective. And, and the number one thing when you're building out an organization's tech stack is it has to be usable for everybody where they understand and can use it and, and your weakest link can just like pick it up and be effective with all of it. And I, I think we hit that sweet spot right now. So it's, it's great. Cause I'm all about that, man. Like wine spies at its core is, is really a technology company that happens to sell wine. So it really, really is important to me that we've got, you know, a dynamic team as we grow that we can kind of, we can kind of keep this. And I'm still trying to figure out how to, how to make this thing a truly distributed team where it doesn't feel like people that aren't in the office are, are second class citizens. And, and I think the next few hires were for the first time ever like, all right, if you live in Florida, that's fine. Let's do this. You know? Well, I feel like this, I'm incredibly grateful. It's been an, we've covered, we've covered like everything from wine. I mean, we've covered the, how to, we didn't really talk about as much about making wine. I feel like a lot of people talk about that, but the wine business yeah, and, and everything. And I'm really grateful. I'd love for you. We'll have to get you're in Santa Rosa. Maybe we'll get you down here to half moon Bay into our studio to talk at another time, maybe about wine making itself and the nuances of, of that stuff. Wrapping up here, cover two more things. One is you're the CEO of Wine Spies now as a agent. What does your day look like? Like you get up, you try to get eight hours sleep. Do you segment your day? How does it look? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I mean, I'm just a person that performs much, much better if I've got a pretty regimented schedule. So ideally, you know, it looks like I get up, not, not crazy crack of dawn, but like my alarm 645 breakfast routine, try to get a half hour workout in at home. And then the, I, now I've been coming into the office every day, even though we're really set up for remote work. And I'm really, I've, I've been coming in every day and I'm, it's just such a different day when I'm at home and I actually really highly productive there too. So I'm currently trying to figure out whether or not I'm going to continue to do the commute in. It's 30 minutes, which is an hour of the day round trip. So let's just go ahead and come into the office. I come into the office, say, Hey to everybody. We've got like five different projects going on at any one time. The, I'm sitting here in our, our headquarters in Petaluma. We bought a pretty large warehouse, which we're just turning into all manner of different projects, including a full media production center, a full workshop with a full machine shop and like makerspace studio. And it's so there's and all that stuff is under construction and always going on. So, you know, I say hi to everybody kind of like, First thing of the day is just touch base and not text a significant amount of time. Try to sit down at my desk before lunch and just power through all of the, the high priority emails. You know, it's just kind of necessary at that point. What I would like to do and I've tried to commit to doing is spend an hour of focused work in the morning. In practice, it almost never happens. And so then go to lunch with a couple of the team members, come back. And then when I come back from lunch, I know most people are like, Oh, I just had lunch. I'm tired. That's actually the time of where I'm just like, actually this, I'm like, okay, I'll stop talking to everybody. I can really kind of grind right after lunch. 
then it's like back to back to your attention getting divided by everybody constantly. It's just an impossibility with Slack. There's just everyone is constantly peeing you. It is impossible to say my priorities for the day. But then I end up working late every day because that's when I people leave and I can actually do my work. And that's just life. That's you know <laughs> that's what it takes. So you know I get home typically not earlier than eight o'clock or very frequently ten o'clock. Hit, hit, you know, I, I try to sauna every night, hop in the sauna, go to bed, rinse and repeat, you know, but I think, I think the only other like, kind of business tip for, for people who are trying to organize their lives is I do use a sauna. I love it. And then I use it in calendar view. And then at the beginning of the day, no matter what, I sit down and I, and I, I pick the things that I'm going to do that day. And then I drag the tasks out into the rest of the week. That I'm gonna, and I try to think about, okay, I could do this tomorrow and this tomorrow. Invariably, all the tasks I assigned that day did not get done. So then the next day when I sit down, I reassign. And, and then that process also, you just feel when there's that, that, that to-do list item that is, keeps on getting pushed. And eventually you'll be like, all right, it's, it's not about procrastination. I got to sit down and I got to get this thing done. So I'm sorry, you know, other incoming things is happening. And that, that I think is a very crucial practice for me personally. Day in the life. Well, that's the day in the life, and that is the truth. And I'm pre- I'm appreciative of you being honest. I feel like for our three HPTs, high percentage tips, that we dropped so much business information, and you just did gave so many tips on the day. Maybe you should give. I don't even know if this is possible. Can you give tips for three HPTs for wine lovers? Oh, that's interesting. I thought about my HPTs too, so I had other ones kind of prepared. Well, you can do. I mean, you can nix me. Yeah, no, I, mean, I, I got you. Well, I'll get, first, I'll give you the one I wanted to say, which is that, right. which is like you know, as a high, high tip for a manager, just whenever there's any sort of conflict, get every side of the story before you make a decision. You know, it's just in, like every single time there's two sides of the story, and if you hear something from somebody and you go off half cocked, it just always blows up in your face every time. So just talk to everybody. You know, maybe there's differences in stories, but you're, you're going to have to be the, the judge at the end of the day and figure out what the best course of action is. But at least get your information first. So that's one. Yeah. That's a great tip. <laughs> right, right. That's the first time out of, I don't even know what we're at, 175, 200 guests yeah. that has ever said that one. So I love, I love that yeah, one. I think it's really important. And the... Okay, so a wine one. Okay, well, a deeply held wine belief is is don't let other people tell you what's good. If you like it, it's good. And that really is the end of the story. I like Apothic, and I I don't care that other people tell me that I shouldn't like it. It's like, I know what it is. I even know what's in it. And, you know, it's 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 wine cola, and that's that's fine. It tastes good. So, you know, if you trust your own palate. What, what you will find is, is if you... As you drink wine, your palate will change and you will start to like certain things. And oftentimes those will be slightly more expensive things over time. But that doesn't mean that you were wrong when you started drinking wine to like what you liked. And then the, the, the way to, here's the number one tip. The way to get better in wine is all you have to do is just pay attention to what you are tasting and associate that with what you are drinking. The, the reason that people of you know often of means can drink wine their entire lives frequently and never really like 
learn or get better at knowing what, what they like and what they don't like is because they don't pay attention to what is in their, their glass. So when you like a wine, it's as simple as saying like, oh, cool, can I see that label? Okay, so I'm drinking a Russian River Valley Pinot Noir. And just take the time to make that very simple mental association between what the actual wine is, where it is from, who the producer is, and the experience of drinking the wine. And then over time, your brain will naturally make those associations and you will get better at, oh, I like wine from, I like Pinots. I like Pinots typically from Russian River. And that, that it's a very simple process. And, you know, without opening a wine book, you will, you will soon start sitting down at a restaurant, opening the wine list and being like, oh, okay, at least, you know, I, just, I, I start to gravitate to something on here. It's not just like, oh, it's all French to me. You tell me what I should get, you know? I feel like you just gave life advice. One is your second tip is be yourself, no matter what anyone yeah. else says. And pay attention to what's going on in your life and you'll figure out why you're in the position you are. That's true. That's absolutely right. I felt like a very philosophical day. Well, crew, this has been awesome. Where can people, listeners, find WineSpice? WineSpice.com is the best place. The truly terrific deals every day. Couldn't be prouder of what we do and the actual, you know, service that we provide and the value of the wines. Yeah, winespies.com. And there's always some sort of killer intro deal. Like I said, $1 to get you started. And we always make sure that those wines are exceptionally good. So you can't. Right on. So yeah, people go to winespies.com. We'll put it in the show notes. You can go there. You can sign up for the email list and get started for a dollar. Crew, this is, this has been awesome. I'm really grateful. I'm looking forward to getting together and talking more about wine. And thank you so much for sharing everything that you did today. I'm sorry to step all over your outro, but I cannot leave you without letting you know that Agent Red, his co-founder of the company, was Agent White, and his actual name is Brandon. So, what the heck, man? <laughs> How wild is that? Well, you're, you, you, I didn't expect that one. That's like that, that's a that you're dropping big things yeah. today. Well, <laughs> listen, that's pretty that's pretty cool. But thanks a lot, man. It's been a ton it's of fun. It's been a great time. Thank you so much, Brandon, for having me on. It's been a real blast. Bye, everyone.